0: All right, welcome to Brew Talk with John and Forrest. I'm John the chemist. I'm Forrest the brewer. We are friends from college who decided to record this podcast. We've been reading this book. It's uh, Brewing Science, a Multidisciplinary Approach. By Michael Mosher and Kenneth Trantham. What we're doing in this show.
1: I thought that this was, uh, what I found was weird though, before we even get into all that, uh, is basically if you don't, quickly pitch your yeast and cool your wart down quick enough you can have some big issues there because yeah. it's like the perfect like ground for bacteria to grow and fester. Yeah so
0: let's get into it. Today yeah. we're gonna talk about fermenting. Cooling your wort and fermenting. And pitching yeast. That is what you do in between cooling your wort and the fermentation process. What else are we talking about? Science. We'll talk a little bit about refrigeration, probably not a lot. We'll talk about the morphology of yeast, how the yeast actually makes alcohol is probably the more important stuff we'll get into, Mm -hmm. and uh, other things that yeast makes that you may or may not want in your final beer. Let's take a look. Um, I don't know how long it usually takes you with your war chiller.
1: Uh, you know, so I have a copper wart chiller, which as we know is the best for conductivity, but it also can corrode the quickest. So I have to constantly clean it like right after use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you just want to do that anyway. It still builds yeah.
0: up like an oxide on it too,
1: right? Yeah. 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 So you, I just use the, you know, regular little washcloth, you know, keep it clean. But yeah, that still takes a good 45 minutes, half hour, 45 minutes, you know.
0: So then maybe my estimate of two hours is way, way
1: low. I know, it, well, with ice, it took us, like, four hours before, and it was bad, like, because how long it took. We want to chill our war and
0: the faster, the better, because you
1: have less risk. Exactly, because at the same time, when you pitch your yeast, once it is cool enough, and you pitch your yeast, usually the yeast that you're pitching is stronger than any bacteria and wild yeast that might have gotten in there, so yeah. your yeast kind of just come on like Mike Tyson them, you know, sucker punch them, knock them out. yeah. yeah. That's not always the case. You know, you might get some strong bacteria or something like that. So
0: So have you had any particularly
1: bad fermenting experiences? Yes. uh, Actually, I've only ruined beer one time, and I'm not entirely sure where I went wrong. It was when I decided to brew 10 gallons in one day. Two batches of five, not one batch of 10. Two batches of five, and both of them went bad. So obviously... It was something in the early stages or something that I didn't clean properly that that then stuck to both beers.
0: Yeah, work we hate when we have problems that show up and then go away and never come back because you never get an opportunity to test and see where that problem
1: came from. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this beer happens to be uh, a little bit out there where it has a lot of ingredients going into it too, such as chocolate, brewer's licorice gypsum like just several different other things i have um black liquid molasses uh a whole a whole bunch of different things that go into it and so i have all these other ingredients and i'm then i question was my process right was my chocolate bad you know you know i mean it looked right and smelled right but you know i'm no scientist i don't know what was wrong like i can't really reproduce it exactly so so the initial part of the yeast lifetime Before they start
0: making alcohol, they go through a production, a period of reproduction. Uh, You need oxygen. We'll talk more about this later. And a typical way that a brewer would do that is through aeration. So they aerate their wort before they pitch the yeast, so the wort gets air in it. Then it starts producing
1: alcohol. Do you aerate your wort? So I guess you know, with meads, I definitely always aerate them because it's so easy. It's just a one little gallon thing. Shake up the jugs. With beer, I I don't go out of my way to, you know, shake everything up and everything like that. But I'm not super delicate either because it's hard to shake up five gallons of wort once you have five gallons of wort. So yeah, I don't go out of my way. Like let's pour it from bucket to bucket to aerate it, you know, or doing anything special. I mean, I just put my spoon in there, stir it a little bit. That's, that's it. So no.
0: So there's other ways to like produce that chemistry in the liquid. Really? Um, without oxygen and one way that I heard about
1: was using olive oil, oil in your beer. I think someone's with you is this, you don't usually want (laughs) fats or oils in your, in your brews. So yeast need oxygen to produce sterols,
0: which is the, one of the main components of the Mm -hmm. cell wall. And they also need unsaturated fatty acids, also part of the cell wall. Yeah. They need oxygen to produce these. But if you already provide them with the unsaturated fatty mm-hmm. acids, why would they need the oxygen to produce it? So you mix olive oil with your yeast. So I think, a, yeah, I wouldn't want to pitch my pitch my yeast with it. I would want to make a slurry that's, with olive oil and make sure the olive oil is well That's what I would do. <laughs> because,
1: but well, usually before I pitch my yeast anyway, like, okay, so usually I if I use wet yeast, it's a slap pack. So you have to slap it ahead of time and wait like the – one to three hours whatever it is for it to expand. If I use dry yeast, I always mix it first, you know, in a little cup, just kind of get it activated, wake it up before I actually pitch it in to get it doing its job. So, yeah, I would do a little slurry with that olive oil see what happens. So for the
0: uninitiated, pitching yeast literally means putting the yeast
1: on top <laughs> of or into the wort, pouring it, throwing it. Yeah, get in there fascinating i'm gonna i'm gonna take some notes on this one because i'm gonna have to check my books i have a couple of books about uh yeast nutrients and how to wake them up
0: once we get to fricking yeast and fermentation i've been saying since the beginning of this thing that it was going to get interesting and weird and this is going to be an exciting part and it definitely is I'm so sorry, dude. The carnot cycle stuff—I loved. I love learning about engines uh, again because I always learned about them from the heat engine perspective, the forward direction where you're producing yeah. heat from sort of energy source or whatever. Um, and all my classes, like that I've taken that have had this material, have always been like just going in the forward direction. And I was really stoked to actually get to learn about it in the reverse direction, with like you know the concrete example, really using it. Um, whereas in the class, it's usually like you can do it in reverse and it's a refrigerator yeah. and instead of efficiency, it's a coefficient. of That was kind of cool. All right. I'm going to go grab a beer and then we'll get into it. All right. Are we going to talk about wort chilling? Chilling with our wort? We kind of already talked about it, but we didn't talk about what they do on like the industrial scale, right? Homebrewers usually use some copper tubing.
1: Or... A lot of ice on the outside of your wort bucket.
0: In the brewing industry, they use heat exchangers, which is kind of what we're doing already anyway. That's what the wort chiller is with the copper tube there. And the ice, it's a heat exchanger. You're taking, the heat is moving from the hot Mm -hmm. to the cold. And when it does that, it cools down.
1: Thermal conductivity. Um, that's kind of like the big takeaway from that. In a nutshell, yeah. And it's just uh, different materials are better conductives at heat. And so that's what I was mentioning earlier. That's I use the copper one, but it is corrosive, so I do have to wash it quite often after dripping it. Well, You want to wash it anyway, but you want to wash it quickly after dipping it into your work. Another thing that I thought was
0: cool was the flow. The way that you fl- flow your... Um, hot fluid and cold mm. fluid relative to each other to change the the cooling dynamics of the of the wart. In a lot of engineering, big temperature changes and large temperature fluctuations are kind of bad. Yeah. You know, they add stress. It adds stress to whatever yeah. your system is. And the same applies for cooling stuff. So when you're heating and cooling your wart, you're also heating and cooling the vessel and the material that you're doing this heat transfer through. And depending on how the heat is transferred, that can add stress. Ways of flowing um, the hot fluid and the cold fluid to minimize the stress due to thermal changes in the material. There's countercurrent flow in which flow of the hot fluid and the cold fluid are opposite to each other. And then there's concurrent flow where the flow of the hot fluid and the cold fluid are in the same direction. More common types of heat exchangers that are used are like
1: a a plate mm-hmm. heat exchanger, where you have a bunch of plates that are cooled inside of a like a tank. They're all basically doing the exact same thing, though. It's just you know you're running a coolant or a cooler liquid that is contained somehow through your hot wart, and you don't want to introduce that cool liquid in any way, shape, or form to your hot wart. And so it's what's the best yeah. way to conduct cool liquid through your warp and chill it the quickest. Because remember, we're, we wanna work fast here. The quicker we can chill this, the sooner we can pitch our yeast.
0: So we're gonna take a quick five and then we're gonna come back and talk about the equipment that you use
1: for chilling and adding oxygen to your warp. All right, so the equipment that's used in fermentation.
0: Aerators. Yeah, so you said you don't aerate,
1: right? No, not beer. You aerate your meads, uh, though. Yes, yes. It. Yeah, just because it's so much easier to shake, you know, a gallon jug than it is five gallons of liquid.
0: If there's a few different ways to aerate beer or that are, that are used to aerate beer. So um, what I think a lot, I guess, <laughs> I feel like I kind of do this. But just letting the vessel sit in air, which is the least safe, most bacteria-prone, risky way of letting your
1: wart cool. Yeah, I mean, even if you use a wart chiller like me, your your wart's still open, exposed, because the chiller has to be sitting down in there.
0: I think an interesting way would just be to spray it into something. Is an interesting way.
1: That is, to yeah. it.
0: And then bubbling oxygen into it with like a, a tube connected mm-hmm. to a tank would be interesting.
1: Just feeding uh, it with oxygen.
0: There's like a Venturi aerator, has like the water or the wart like flowing through a tube, and the tube thins out, thins in a section. And where, where the tube gets thin, it has a hole in the top that's open to the air. So our oxygen has oxygen being pumped into it with an oxygen tank. But basically you bubble oxygen into the warp when the warp speeds up in that narrow passage.
1: It doesn't oxygenate it too early. You know, it's controlled as it's bottlenecked through there, the narrow yeah. part. Okay.
0: To me, the, the most straightforward one is just bubbling. Yeah. Which tends to be the best way, but you're bubbling it through like a an oxygenation stone. Some people use, which is like what you'd use in a fish tank.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That actually makes, that's really good idea. You know, Like fish tank stuff. Cause that's all you're doing with the water. The whole time is oxygenating that water for the fish. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think, you know, you're trying to get your yeast to reproduce. So if you pitch a lot of yeast, you know, the oxygenation might not uh, matter that much or in small batches it might not matter as much.
1: Yeah, I've never had a problem with fermentation kicking off um, with beer. It just seems to be just great uh, with meads. I do add a little natural nutrient through uh, grapes and yeah.
0: it You know, depending on what your fermenter, like depending on how much head space that has over the, the fermenting beer, mm-hmm. you know, like if you don't have a large volume of beer, or even if you do have a large volume of beer, if you can like make the space like spread the beer out over a larger surface area so it's like shallow mm-hmm. but the less beer you have the easier it is to aerate and get that oxygen in so five gallon batches yeah. is probably fairly straightforward i imagine in the 10 gallon batch region you end up with such a large volume of liquid and you probably your oxygen in your fermenters might not be enough for that's a good point in the headspace might not be enough for your yeast to reproduce this is why it's important on the commercial level Mm -hmm. You'd have to experiment and try when you first start aerating and to see if it actually changes the product.
1: And I've been so efficient lately. Like I think this beer right now is 8%. And uh, the recipe I was going for with, it only had like going for efficiency of 70%. percent i definitely went over that because (laughs) I'm like an 8.6% beer now. So very efficient at getting those sugars out, whatever I did with that process or whatever. You're
0: using some monster yeast at the right temperature. It's just so nice.
1: (sighs) Yeah. It it works real well. (laughs) So I thought this was kind of neat though, that refrigeration uh, is much like you, you know, like the uh, cooling process of beer. You just have a cooler, cooling liquid that's pumped through the tubes that keeps everything cool. And in the way of refrigerators for the longest time, it was Freon. And Freon's now going to be like eliminated by 2020, this year. I thought that was fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's whole areas of chemistry that are dedicated to these uh, high heat capacity cooling refrigerants and cooling fluids. Yeah, there's a lot of chemistry that goes into these refrigerants. Um, a lot of work's being done in green chemistry with regard to these as well. Refrigerating things is central to modern society.
1: Yeah, uh, there was a poll. Uh, it's weird. It was on a video game website that I frequent. Uh, how do you stay cool during the summer heat? And over 80% of the people central heating in air or slash air conditioning unit. Right. So, it's a type of refrigerator. Yeah.
0: The thermodynamic process that your air conditioner goes through is the exact same thermodynamic process your refrigerator goes through just with different types of pumps.
1: Yeah, and they have fans attached. That's really the only difference. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. So now we're
0: going to talk about fermenters. In lager brewing, you usually ferment cold. And as a cold fermenting yeast, if you uh, ferment at like ambient temperature, the yeast ends up producing a bunch of off flavors, right? Yep. And then there's a few different types of fermenters, like the open square fermenter. Well,
1: uh, you know what? This chapter touched on it, which I thought was really cool. It talks about how in ancient times they used to inoculate their brews with yeast, how they used to pitch yeast in the old days. Mm Mm-hmm. And it mentions the ale stick, the magic ale stick. that was handed down from family member to family member. It's your magical wooden stick that actually had just wild natural yeast on it because most things in nature have their own wild yeast on it. And the brewer would just stir their mixture with it and fermentation would happen naturally. And so they'd keep that stick because it was magic. They wouldn't rinse it off because... It was magical. And so the yeast would actually just soak into the wood and absorb into the wood. So every time you stirred with that, you're releasing that yeast again into your mixture and you're making beer from your wort. And sometimes they would hang these sticks up outside of their house and they'd show like, come to this brew house. We have beer here for sale. And hang the stick up outside to dry. It was a unique thing that they did. And this is where then sign search show up for brew houses. They were hanging up their brew sticks outside to show that there was fresh brew. Stop here. Yeah. Then they started putting up a sign with a broom on it. That's kind
0: of funny. Cause it's like, uh, Oh, it's a broom, not a stick.
1: Yeah. It, it was more broom like, because it was more of a branch, a branch, you know, where it's, off-shooting parts because it helped stir and aerate when it had uh, branches to it.
0: So this is kind of like open fermentation where you kind of get the flavor of the region.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. And because each region would have different woods available to them too. So depending on what yeast would stick to that wood or come from that. Yeah. Connect to the 5G. We'll see if that works. I don't know. So last I heard you were talking about Krausen and collecting that and how you can store that. And, uh, you know, it's similar to uh, storing kombucha mothers or vinegar. And we buy particular varieties of yeast. um,
0: And there are varieties of uh, two major strains, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae (laughs) and the Saccharomyces, what's the...
1: I don't even remember the other one. They're a top working yeast and a bottom working yeast. Well, I'm gonna get the other one right now. The Saccharomyces pastorianus. You might want to do an open fermenter. You know, not pitch yeast or anything, and leave your brew open, and just leave it to the bacteria and the wild yeast out there. You can also add yeast
0: and then all and have the wild yeast act on the beer too.
1: I think you're if you do that the wild yeast will be kicked out by your yeast because the yeast that you're pitching is probably going to have a stronger colony because okay. it was, you know, it, you, you have a bigger batch that you're probably going to throw in than the wild yeast that found its way in there naturally. So the stronger colony is usually going to win unless you get a, a real strong wild colony of yeast that... But you can still open ferment with pitch yeast and open ferment. Oh, yes. Yes. It'll definitely alter your flavors because then you're going to get uh, bacterias and things in there. And this is going to be like farmhouse ales or sour ales. Or And then close fermenting would be
0: sealing off your fermentation from the atmosphere, letting the oxygen get used up. And then the yeast, once it doesn't have oxygen, stops reproducing and starts making alcohol.
1: Which is what most home brewers will do. And most brewers do because you have better control over your flavor and esters by doing a king closed sealed environment instead of just letting nature run its course and wild making things wild in there. Have you heard of the Yorkshire Square?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a septic tank where the the Krausen bubbles up onto the top and you kind of collect it back out.
1: This is funny, yeah. It's exactly exactly like you said, it's like a septic tank and it's like the old version of the modern you know, brew or <laughs> brew jug. <laughs> but
0: that was like a way – I think, you know, historically why you would want that is because you want the, the barm or what forms from the krausen, like that layer that forms on the top because you're going to make your next batch of beer with that.
1: Or krausen is the barm from another wort that has already been actively fermenting. Yeah, barm comes directly from your brew. Yes. And krausen's from the other brew. Okay, so you collect
0: the barm. And you can add Krausen to an open fermenting beer, or you can use your Krausen to ferment as your yeast, as your yeast colony, pretty much.
1: Are you familiar with the term, the krausen line? No. So at the top of your fermenter buckets, because of all this yeast colonies that are living up there, over time, they might get stuck to the sides of the bucket or your fermenter and dry. And so you'll see a dry ring of yeast after you move your liquid out, your wort or beer out, depending mm-hmm. what stage you're in. And so then you'll see that dry ring there. That's called a Croissant line. And it's not bad. It's just the yeast that have dried out and now they're stuck, the proteins, whatever, gunk stuck to the side of the walls. It's not bad. won't hurt you. It's not mold. Yeah. But uh, it, it happens in uh, beers, wines, meads, almost everything that you can toss yeast into. To ferment as a liquid will create a croissant line of some type. Even hot sauces, if you ferment a hot sauce, will create a croissant line of hot sauce.
0: So there's other ways that were developed to do this Yorkshire square fermentation design and more readily available materials such as barrels. Um, but modern brewers, um, home brewers, use. Some sort of like carboy, a glass carboy or a plastic bucket, a yep. five-gallon bucket to do their ferment to do their fermentation, or to do we do that's how we do our fermentation.
1: That's the only type I know of, glass or the plastic.
0: Um, but that's not really realistic for large-scale brewing. So they use uh, these cylindro-conical vessels, which are basically a big cylinder with a cone at the bottom.
1: If you've ever gone to a brewery tour, you've seen these before. They are in every brewery that I've gone to and taken a look inside. And I've gone to quite a few breweries. It's in every single one. They have these in different sizes, mind you. But they have these and they have multiples of these. They're specially designed to filter off the tube, or
0: avoid having the troupe end up in your beer when you go on to finish it.
1: Yep yep keg it or bottle it whatever you're doing with it you don't want that in there because it'll definitely give you the bad off flavors true on the bottom is the bad stuff the croissant line at the top won't affect your flavor so much it'll be gritty and nasty you don't want it but it's not as bad as true is. true is the worst
0: um we had a bunch of technical errors we talked about the equipment that you uh ferment with force did you want to say anything else about that
1: No, that's just basically the, for the, like we said, the difference between home brewer and commercial brewer, where the home brewer is always going to be in a fermenter bucket or a glass carboy of varying sizes. But when you want to start going bigger than that, uh, then you start becoming a microbrewery and you need some, you know, the CCVs. Yeah, the CCVs, the cylindrical conical vessels.
0: Um, when we get back, uh, we're going to start talking about yeast, the structure of yeast, the action of yeast. So right. you want to talk about some yeast? Yeah, let's talk about some yeast. So um, so yeast are little single-celled
1: organisms. It's fungus, fungi. You're going to have fungi when you use these in your beer. They're fungi one guy.
0: Uh, I did not know that they were classified Cervase. 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 Saccharomyces Pastorianus Pastorianus
1: Uh, ale yeast and lager yeast, top yeast, bottom yeast. <laughs> top yeast, bottom yeast, respectively. Uh, so, and usually uh, when breweries create a yeast, it's their own propriety and they don't want to let that out. And so yeah. it's kind of their secret, their own thing. And that's kind of why I want to get my own yeast strain going.
0: They've kind of like tuned the chemistry of the yeast to get the flavors they want, the right amount of. Uh, conversion efficiency of sugar to alcohol over the right amount of time.
1: So basically Uh, what you're saying is that yeast have now been developed to control these different areas, flocculation, attenuation, operation temperature, and the alcohol tolerance. Yeah. Last week I asked you about uh, yeast
0: in our conversation, but it didn't make it to the episode and I'm going to put it in here right now. I don't know if I mentioned last episode, but I have some friends that are brewing in the Sacramento area. They're just getting into home brewing. They are having issues with temperature control, so they bought some yeast, some yeast that has high temperature tolerance. Um, okay. That yeast is called Kveik, K V E I K, and it's a it's a a yeast out of Norway. Um, so it's not the Saccharomyces, it's not Brett or tanomyces. It's not the typical brewer's yeast that you're t- you that you usually find. It's a yeast that is known for brewing at a really wide range of temperatures from about like 75 degrees Fahrenheit to over hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Ferments fast and it gives low off flavors and that's kind of what it's known for. And I was just reading about this today because this really might be a, a really good way for the average person who is not necessarily interested in becoming a home brewer, doing some one gallon quick brews at home, in one week they'll be drinking a
1: beer, two weeks they'll be drinking a beer. I think I've talked about these before, these quick ferment yeasts, and I haven't tried them. So I'm very apprehensive to try them. Uh, what's What's their alcohol tolerance, do you know? Uh, not off the top of my head. Um, I, I'm not seeing any specific. I, I see them selling it. Yeah, I just don't see what it's alcohol tolerance is. So I'm curious if it could be used for mead or if it's more of a beer. It does have a particular flavor that it gives off that's more citrus.
0: Unless you want those citrus flavors, it might not be the yeast for you. Oh, look at this. Yeah, they have, there's a whole
1: oh. lot. There's a bunch, right? Yeah, there's different Creeks, there's the Hornadol, the voss. Yeah, so what I'm looking at right now is the hornadol Kvik. and its alcohol tolerance is 12%. So that could be a good, pretty little mead right there. Optimum temperature 70 to
0: 95. They, they're just a family of yeast, and there's different mutations and different genetics among those families.
1: No, I was just saying, like, how yeah, it's rumored to do it in two days' time. I think that might be beers, though, not meads, because meads. Are honey and honey takes a lot longer to uh, ferment than.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could try a mead and see how long it takes. Um, Always, yeah. But definitely an interesting beer yeast, right? For especially yeah. for home brewer.
1: If, if that were, yeah, if I were doing one gallon batches of beer, I could probably see myself using that.
0: Yeasts are able to live in oxygen rich environments and oxygen deficient environments and the chemistry that they do in those two environments dictates what your beer is going to be like and that chemistry is definitely yeah that 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 chemistry affects the beer in both cases so um do you want to tell us about
1: fluctuation this is the proteins that are all coming out of your brew and everything and you want to the yeast is now entered into the situation and it's binding to them and they're getting all thick and sticking together. And so this is where all the yeast is sticking, getting gunky and absorbs together. And it can actually be kind of bad if it flocculates too quickly because you might not get full fermentation out of your yeast with the flocculation. So you want the yeast, so you want individual yeast
0: cells to have as much contact with the beer as possible so when they fluctuate or form a cake when they start Clump caking together yeah when they start caking together they don't have as much surface area with the beer so they're not transferring uh the beer through their cell membrane as much
1: right exactly
0: all right so you were mentioning how fluctuation is like nestle chocolate <laughs> melt. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> the Nesquik chocolate milk, the powder, when you s- start to make some chocolate milk, sometimes you get those little clumps of chocolate powder that don't just break apart easily. So they're not really doing anything. They're just sitting in your chocolate milk, you know, your milk there. So you really need to break them up with your spoon and stuff, crush them against the side of your glass to release all that chocolate. So then you get as much surface area touching your milk as possible to make that ch- chocolatey goodness. It's flocculation you
0: want the yeast to kind of stay independent and Yes. not fluctuate very much because when it fluctuates a lot, you end up not getting as good of attenuation and you don't get the off flavors absorbed
1: as much. Correct. So just not doing their job to the efficiency as they could be if they were all separate.
0: So attenuation, which I just mentioned is kind of, how much sugar is able to be converted into alcohol by the yeast.
1: Um, Does that have to do with the yeast's tolerance to alcohol? It does play a little bit in that. Um, so So if there's a, okay. Eventually the yeast isn't going to be able to survive in an alcohol solution that's too high in alcohol. So that's what the tolerance is. You know, yeast can survive into a certain tolerance of it but how much so how much sugar they can convert is going to work up to that tolerance so this is how you can make a stronger beer so you know you have to have more sugar so you have a stronger attenuation so you're gonna to have to have a yeast that can convert that sugar into something drinkable I mean, unless you want a really sweet beer so yeah those two go hand in hand attenuation and alcohol tolerance so does the temperature, oh, I mean, we've
0: mentioned this a lot. The temperature also plays a pretty big effect in how the yeast uh, functions and how well it attenuates and how much off flavors it makes and all
1: that stuff, correct? Yeah, that's what we've been talking about this whole chapter. That you, you need, Yeah, so different yeast, different temperatures. Um, cold weather climates have colder yeast that you can actually use. Uh, warmer temperatures have warmer yeast or yeast that work Operate in higher temperatures, I guess, not warmer yeast, because they can work in lower temperatures too. The Quebec yeast we talked about that yeah. operates
0: at one hundred and five degrees or whatever people say. Crazy
1: temperatures. Yeah, the temperatures. Quick ferment. Yeah, that is crazy. I gotta. I, I still want to look into it. I want to kind of try it, but I'm scared of it. <laughs> yeah, I would. I want to try it
0: too, just to see.
1: Exactly, just see what's out there. I mean, I did have a pile of yeast still to use. So get this, I was almost going to, the next beer, uh, we already have a recipe that we're going to work off of, but it, there was two that we were just like debating between. And we went with the, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, it's not important, but the one that we didn't go with was a Trinidad Pirate Ale. This mm. ale required a full 750 milliliter bottle of rum to be poured inside uh. of your brew. <laughs> And so if you pour that rum into your wort before you pitched your yeast, your yeast wouldn't do anything because you've already reached an alcohol tolerance, most likely, higher than what that yeast can work with. So in that brew, I'm pretty sure we would have had to pitch yeast first, let the yeast ferment all the way out. And then once it was done fermenting and we're ready to put it in conditioning or secondary, We'd have to then pour in the rum with it and mix it together. Right. I didn't look into the recipe very far because we didn't decide to go with it because we want beer. We don't want rum beer. <laughs> I mean, we have hard liquor, you know, around, but we don't drink hard liquor very often. We prefer our beer. We're going to talk a little bit about the way the
0: yeast looks, the way it's made up. So it looks like a cell that you learned about in like seventh grade. The cell wall has a lot of glucans in it which we talked about in a previous episode it's made up of phospholipids other types of lipids sterols on the outside of the cell membrane there's like proteins that stick out so that the cell can interact with its environment do those scab up yeah i believe they do i believe that's what stops the yeast of ultimately from Uh, reproducing it reaches a limit with how many times it can reproduce because of this uh, scabbing so yeah so the yeast kind of does what cells do it reproduces until the membrane doesn't allow it to reproduce that kind of limits the cells life or yeah the cells life or the yeast life part of the metabolism of the yeast is it's eating up the oxygen and using up the oxygen in the environment to reproduce Um, in what's called aerobic conditions. So aerobic is oxygen-rich. Is considered an oxygen-rich environment. And that's what's happening in these aerobic conditions. The sugar doesn't get – in this case, it's still – the yeast is still eating sugar in an aerobic condition in the oxygen-rich environment. It still uses sugar as its its energy source, but it goes Mm -hmm. through a different process than uh, fermentation. Or alcohol. Alcohol happens in the anaerobic process when there's no oxygen. So basically in the aerobic conditions you're going through glycolysis that has multiple mm-hmm. steps that are oxidizing the sugar um, and to pyruvate which is used for a bunch of cellular process. It goes into the Krebs cycle and that's where all the energy for the yeast comes from. We do the Krebs cycle. Most living organisms do some version of the Krebs cycle. The, generate their cellular energy um and these are oxidative processes you need oxygen to do these to to do this process um so when you've closed off your fermentation vessel Mm -hmm. to the environment after the oxygen in the fermentation vessels eaten up the anaerobic processes start glycolysis continues but the citric
1: acid the krebs cycle stops that's what it was yeah. This is where alcohol is produced.
0: Um, and this is, what we call, this is what we call anaerobic metabolism. So aerobic metabolism and anaerobic metabolism. Um, the yeast is now can, getting its energy from a different pathway than the glycolysis and Krebs cycle. Now it's using the pyruvate from glycolysis to make ethanol and um, other molecules. And ethanol is the alcohol in beer. The good stuff. There's a couple other ways to ferment so lactobacillus and pediococcus also ferment sugars in anaerobic conditions but they skip a step that yeast has when they skip that step they produce lactic acid which makes a more sour sour effect yeah
1: Uh, Oh, so that's why when you have a sour beer it's usually a lower alcohol because the bacteria was also using some of that sugar to make sour And your yeast was going to make alcohol. They're both competing for that sugar. It's a fight for all the food.
0: Things that can have an effect on metabolism. um, I'm going to go through them kind of quickly. High concentration of
1: glucose. Crap tree. Uh, Because, you know, if your sugar doesn't uh, eat all the sugar all the way, then it's just going to be excess residual.
0: What I think happens when there's too much sugar is that instead of going through... The oxidative process, which includes glycolysis and the Krebs cycle, Mm -hmm. it skips that step and goes right to making alcohol, so you end up not having as much yeast to ferment all the sugar. Another effect is too much oxygen, or oxygen always being around. Pasteur. Fermentation is slowed, or stopped. Stalled. So you can actually use this to your advantage where if you want to make a higher, if you have a high alcohol a high alcohol tolerance yeast, you can stop the fermentation mm-hmm. and have it reproduce more and then go back to fermenting so that you don't, you know, when the yeast gets close to the end of its life cycle and the ana- anaerobic process, you reintroduce the aerobic conditions, the yeast reproduces,
1: you have new yeast, you can restart the anaerobic process Here's the problem. You want to have a lot of oxygen the first time to get that colony going strong. If you try to introduce oxygen again, then you run the risk of making vinegar. Okay. You don't want to over-oxidate after fermentation has jumped and started going really well. I mean, unless you know what you're doing, uh, it's just best not to mess with that because you, you might create vinegar. Okay. Very delightful vinegar. But it's hard to create vinegar with beer. It's usually with the wines and the meads. And
0: speaking speaking of other stuff, I think we're going to take a quick break and come back
1: and talk about the other
0: stuff that yeast adds besides alcohol.
1: Let's do it.
0: And we're back. With the product of yeast, beer. We're going to talk about other things that happen in the chemistry of yeast. Other products, as Forrest says. <laughs> I think of them as things yeast make. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had off flavors from your yeast? Have you ever had off flavors from your yeast that you know of? So,
1: uh, no, not from the yeast itself, no. Okay. Um, I have been able to tell certain yeast definitely impart more of the fruit flavors and the meads where they're drinkable while it's still green and hasn't aged uh, like some of these with a the certain yeast that really pull out the fruit and it's like oh i can drink this right away where other yeast that might have a higher alcohol tolerance don't really necessarily pull out the fruit flavor so well but damn do they make a strong mead and they probably take a little bit longer to pull in the off flavors right to filter out the off flavors yep yep and uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but uh, when you age meat, it's a good rule of thumb. One month per percentage of alcohol. Yes, I think you have mentioned that before. Yeah, so
0: a 12% meat. Oh. There are ways to add yeast nutrient and get faster alcohol. Yeah, conversion, yeah. So you can get a meat in two months or a month rather than six months.
1: They have some fast conversions, yeah. And I've heard some people say they've turned around and made like two day or a week long mead. And I, you know, they they claim these yeasts that are super powerful, and then add all this nutrient. You know, I just I don't really trust that. I want to go the natural, the regular process. You know, let things take time, let the flavors develop. I'm not I'm in no rush at all. You know, I have nothing but time on this. This is just a hobby of mine, so. So one of the products of yeast is
0: literally that it clears out the products of yeast. If you let it go long enough, it takes those flavors back in or it takes those uh, chemicals back in and uh, metabolizes them further to be non-flavored compounds. Mm -hmm.
1: Works them out. Yeah.
0: Want esters for sure. Um, And then that means, so to get esters, I think sometimes you'll want fatty acids because they esterify.
1: They help hold it. They help hold uh, everything there, yeah. You don't want to be too fatty, though, because you don't want a fatty beard because that's gross. No, that is gross. Um, And then there are
0: other alcohols that get generated by these yeasts besides
1: F- ethanol and they're known as the fusel alcohols <laughs> and it's funny uh because it's referred to as jet fuel <laughs> you get that jet fuel smell it smells very strong when you have very high alcohol concentrations of products that need to be aged you'll get that fusel alcohol smell it's like oh whoa that is fire right there if you drink that a lot more carb yeah jet fuel a lot more carbon Well, there's already a lot
0: of carbon-containing compounds that yeast leaves over. All the color, everything is some sort of carbon organic compound. That's true. So there's a lot of carbon. All the organic stuff has a lot of carbon in it. It's just the fact that you're making these other, like, you have, that give you, like, a jet fuel taste. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our beers look very similar. See, I told you. I can't see yours. So some other products of yeast that... Get taken up, you know. Clarify your beer and change the flavor of the beer. Once the fermentable sugar concentration gets low, the yeast starts taking that. These are the these are the chemicals that we've been talking about. The yeast taking up when the sugar Mm -hmm. gets eaten up. Exactly. When the sugar's concentration low, the yeast eats these these compounds up, and that changes the flavor um, of the beer. Of what you're gonna get, your end result. It might produce more um, esters in this process.
1: So let's summarize real quick. What did we talk about today, Forrest? So today we talked about, you know, cooling your wort and the fermentation process and pitching yeast in a nutshell. Uh, We broke it down a little bit further. We went to equipment and, you know, types of refrigeration and types of fermenters. Yep, that's pretty much what we
0: did. Um, We just wanted to let you know, you can also send us an email um, which is with John and Forrest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you,
1: um, and we'll try to answer your questions in future episodes. We should mention, forest is spelled F-O-R-U-S-T. If you're looking out there and trying to find the forest of trees, you're not going to find them. That's a really good point. So, John, next week, what will we be talking about? You know, we're going to be talking about conditioning. I tell you what, right now, that's what you might have heard as secondary fermentation. But that is a bad word. Cast conditioning. What the heck is that?
0: Haze, which we've mentioned quite a few times in the podcast previously. Haze! <sighs> and the final steps before packaging. See you next week on Brew Talk with John and Forrest. See you then.